Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through the highlights of the June edition as picked out by Mary Doward, who's one of our associate editors. There's lots going on at the moment, isn't there? We're potentially facing a third or perhaps even a fourth wave. Uh, we don't know whether vaccination is going to catch up. We've got patients coming through the departments now with significant COVID pneumonia, something which I've not seen for months. Who knows what's going to happen? At least the sun is shining um, and the weather is good. So let's have a think about what we've got in the June edition of the journal. Not going to mention everything today. There's lots more than we've got time to talk about, but I'll pick out some of the highlights as selected by Mary. So we'll start off with COVID-19. Why not? It continues to dominate the news and our practice, but the focus has moved perhaps away from adapting our departments and new ways of working to enhancing our knowledge of the disease, as well as evaluating some of the possible collateral damage of the pandemic including the impact on doctors. And this issue includes a number of papers on COVID-19, which are important and of interest. The decrease in ED attendances over the lockdown periods, well, it was really noticeable, I think, for most of us. And also a bit of a cause of concern that patients who might well have really needed ED or other forms of medical treatment, to be honest, were deterred by lockdown restrictions, as well as a fear of contracting the virus. So Sless and colleagues in Ireland um, have looked at this. They undertook a retrospective study comparing ED attendances of 2020 to the period 2017 to 2019. Triage presentations of abdominal pain, shortness of breath, chest pain, headache and trauma were examined. And they found a significant decrease in daily attendances of these presentations in 2020 compared with 2017 to 2019. Similarly, um, in another paper, Charlton and colleagues in the UK explored the incidence of emergency calls as well as out-of-hospital cardiac arrests in the northeast of England during those two periods of significant lockdown in 2020. They similarly found a reduction in the incidence of calls as compared with 2019, but a rise in the incidence of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest deaths during the same period. However, you know, and perhaps reassuringly, those changes were transient. The findings of both of these studies highlight the importance of reassuring the public that safety measures are in place to ensure that those needing emergency medical attention can get it and they shouldn't be afraid to attend so that we can, as far as possible, minimise any further adverse impact of the pandemic. Although it's tricky for patients, it's tricky for us and uh, these are difficult times. So let's hope we get through the next few months without the same impact that we saw last year. And there's little doubt that the unprecedented nature, intensity and duration of the pandemic has been distressing for healthcare staff. Uh, many of our readers will identify with the findings of a study by Roberts and colleagues in the UK who conducted an initial cross-sectional electronic survey within a three-part longitudinal study to quantify psychological distress experienced by emergency, anaesthetic and intensive care doctors during the acceleration phase of the first pandemic wave of COVID-19 in the UK and Ireland. And it's quite possible that you may well have even taken part in this study. And they got 5,440 responses, pretty good. All levels of doctor um, seniority were represented. And the authors found that during the acceleration phase of the pandemic, almost half of frontline doctors working in those acute specialties reported a case level of psychological distress as measured by the GHQ-12 general health questionnaire that some of you may be familiar with. Um, and they also asked some additional sort of specific COVID questions. And it's hoped that these findings from the study will be taken seriously and used to inform strategies for future preparation, including doctors' health and well-being in the short and long term. And just to plug in there that although the study was um, focused on doctors, because that's what they did, I think it's highly unlikely that those findings would be any different if we asked our nursing and um, uh, paramedical colleagues. I suspect it will be very similar, if not worse, actually. Um, and so we should make sure that whatever we do is a multi-professional approach um, to improving this. 
Uh, moving on from COVID, um, gosh, it is possible. Um, there is some news on sepsis. Um, sepsis mortality, continuing concern. Um, and you probably heard quite a fair bit around hyperchloremia being associated with poor clinical outcomes in patients with sepsis. Although the evidence of whether or not that's association or causation is, is, is tricky. Um, there's a big study out there at the moment, actually, on that, exactly that, run out of um, uh, New Zealand. And I'm looking forward to the results. What's less known and perhaps less talked about is the impact of hypochloremia. So you might be interested in a study uh, by Lee and colleagues in South Korea. Um, they did a retrospective analysis using a multi-centre prospective cohort of 11 EDs to look at the prevalence of chloride imbalance defined by a sodium chloride difference and looking for whether or not there was an independent association between hypochloremia and 28-door mortality in ED patients. And they did. They found that hypochloremia was uh, more frequently observed than hypochloremia in ED patients with septic shock, and it was independently associated with a 28-day mortality. Interesting findings. Science shines a light on an enduring medical concern, well worth a read, and another reason to look at your sodium levels in your septic patients and manage them appropriately. So, yeah, but of course, we've got a little bit careful. Association is not causation. So there, there needs to be a bit more research in these sort of areas. And as I say, there are some RCTs going on um, in exactly this area at the moment. Moving on from that, we'll look at the usability of electronic health records, um, which some people seem to love and others not so much. Um, so the move to EHRs undoubtedly transformed healthcare for many people. Um, but it does rely heavily on staff to navigate the system, put data in, takes time, takes machines, takes access. Um, and we've probably all faced the challenge of adapting to different systems in, in recent years. Um, those that are clunky and difficult to use uh, with poor interfaces cause delays that can affect patient safety, as well as being incredibly frustrating uh, for staff who just want to get on and see the patients usually. On the other hand, a system which is intuitive and easy to use can increase efficiency, safety and staff satisfaction. I am yet to see one, but I believe they do exist. Bloom and colleagues in London sought to measure the usability of common EHR systems in the UK using a, an internationally validated tool uh, called the ISO. And that's got standards for usability which allow manufacturers and customers to compare and identify systems that have been appropriately tested and which support good clinical care through good usability. Possibly not surprising, but sadly... None of those systems tested in this study um, met good levels of internationally validated standard of acceptable use. Again, disappointing, but perhaps not surprising. And findings of the study may confirm many of our misgivings about our current EHR, but nonetheless, the paper is a must-read for clinical leads in the process of instituting or changing their ED electronic health record systems. Please do read and change. Thank you. Lastly, today we're going to be talking about analgesic equality between men and women who may experience and express pain differently, but does that difference influence treatment? Um, Mary's thoughts. Um, you might not think not, but the findings of a study by Lau and colleagues in Canada suggest otherwise. Um, they undertook a multi-centre population-based observational study to evaluate the effect of sex on ED opioid administration. Uh, they found that males and females had similar similar likelihood of receiving opioids, but males with trauma, flank pain, headache and abdominal pain were much more likely to receive opioids. Is that an unconscious sex bias? I think you need to dig into the paper to, to decide, really. Uh, the authors suggest that we should um, self-examine our analgesic practice. No bad thing. A department should have evidence-based, indication-specific analgesic protocols to reduce practice variability and optimise opioid analgesia. So food for thought, uh, another challenge for equality in healthcare and perhaps a worthwhile QIP. I'd also suggest that you go and have a look, if there's an area of interest, go and have a look at um, difference in prescribing for opioids for pain in on the basis of ethnicity. 
um, for which again there's some data that suggests we're not as equal as we should be. So that was June. Gosh, I hope things are going okay for you. These are tough times, but we will get through it. And I will see you again in July. Bye.